human beings are icebergs. We get we get 10% of the persona and think we know the individual. And I think one of the beautiful things about, about Gene was he realized the complexity of human character and human personality and really felt that it was an anti-humanistic kind of impulse to, to pigeonhole uh, people by those kinds of labels. And, and I, you know, I don't think anybody doubts uh, the damage that they do personally and, and, and kind of culturally. Whenever I am given the opportunity to talk to Terrell Givens, I will take that opportunity. It could be about the weather, and I would chat with him. However, we don't chat about the weather in this episode. We talk about Eugene England, or Gene, as you'll hear us reference him throughout the episode. Who is he? Do you even know? Do you know who this pivotal character in history of the church is? Well, you're about to know all about it, and we would love to have your feedback on this episode. Many of you, we are aware, have never left a review for the show, and it's high time. It's an opportunity for you to share your love of this here show available in podcast form to others who would be looking for something like this. You know, people are still discovering us day after day, even though we've been around more than 10 years. Part of the discovery process comes when you leave us a review. Wherever you're getting this episode, please take a moment and give us that review. Unless you hate this, in which case, keep that to yourself. No one asked you in the first place. And now, another episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. And you know what, Terrell, if we keep doing episodes as regularly as we're doing, I'm just going to insist that you become co-host of The Cultural Hall. It's my friend Terrell Givens. Thanks for being here, sir. Good to be here again, Richie. Thanks. You know, if people want to get to know more about Terrell, you're thinking, you know, the name sounds very familiar. We're not going to spend any time really in getting to know him, though we will get to know more about him as we talk about Eugene England within this episode. But if you want to go back, you want to hear more about Terrell, uh, you can go to episode number 148 of the Cultural Hall. And then he and his wife were both on together in episode number 473. So I would encourage you to go back and check those out. Uh, now, Terrell, you have written this book. It's called Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. And so we, we in the next you know 45 minutes to an hour, have got a lot that we're going to unpack as far as all of this goes. But I would be curious to know, why is it that you have written the book Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism? Well, uh Gene's widow, Charlotte England, asked me to write his biography pretty soon after his death back in 2001. And uh, so what's that, 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I, you know, I was still, I think, a junior professor and uh, trying to get my feet under me. I had other projects. And, and I also thought it would be more appropriate for somebody of his generation to do the biography, somebody who had been a colleague and a peer and a friend. And so I, uh, I, I put her off. And uh, and nothing happened. And then about four years ago, she she came to me again and repeated her request. And anybody who knows Charlotte personally will have complete and perfect empathy for my inability to turn her down a second time. <laughs> and I think by then also, I recognized how incredibly timely and relevant rather than dated and past history the life of john of uh, gene england was and um you know there was a 
a time for a while there where I thought, well, the church has gone through this transition. We've kind of come of age. We understand now the necessity to engage our history fully and uh, accurately. And he just, uh, I thought his moment had passed. And then in some ways I see all of these questions coming to the fore again. And uh, so it actually turned out to be a real labor of love. I, I felt a great affinity for the man as well as his work and perspectives and experiences. And uh, so I was happy to do it the second time she asked. So I'm curious, you said, you know, it, you thought it might be better suited by someone who was a colleague or, you know, sort of of his generation. Two questions around that. What is sort of his generation? And if you weren't his colleague, did you ever have interaction with him? Well, you know, he became uh, a kind of a public figure in the 1970s and 80s, uh, mostly came to prominence in the 80s through his conflicts with some of the, the the major voices in the institutional church. So I didn't have anybody in particular in mind, but I, I just knew that I had, uh, I, I had known him or most of, you know, in some ways I call that, you know, the, one of the greatest generations of the church, right? There were, you know, Hugh Nibley and uh, a lot of great intellectuals of the church and Truman Madsen and, and a lot of people that he was personally associated with that were really some of the formative thinkers in the tradition in the 70s and 80s. Um, so that's that's what I thought would have been a more appropriate um, writer. I did know him, but only passingly. Uh, he actually had reached out to me in uh 1997-98 at the time that my very first book came out Viper on the Hearth and that didn't get a lot of press at the time and I was a pretty unknown quantity and most of the kind of the uh the the LDS intelligentsia uh didn't pay much attention to that and he did actually hmm. and I was highly flattered that he contacted me he asked me to come out and talk about it I participated in a academic symposium out uh, at Westminster um, then he asked me to speak uh, once or twice uh, after he moved to UVU. So it really was at the tail end of his career. I was very much looking forward to getting to know him, uh, maybe uh, as, a, as a mentor, uh, but also as a friend and, and colleague. And uh, it was right at that time in his life that the, the brain cancer came and, and knocked him out. Uh, so I had a few tender encounters with him, as I would describe them, um, I think both of which I, I describe in the book. One was when I came and spoke at UVU. And, uh, you know, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I was pretty new to the profession still, uh, not, not a real uh, self-confident public speaker. Mm -hmm. And I gave a talk at UVU. It was a large mixed audience. It was clear that not all of them were with me in the things that I had to say. And somebody asked a question in the Q&A that was not hostile, but it certainly wasn't friendly. And it kind of discomfited me. And I, 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 uh, I was left stunned and speechless for a moment. Every academic's worst nightmare, right? Yeah. You're on the stage in front of an audience and your mind goes totally blank. And suddenly I just felt this gentle hand on my shoulder. And he had risen and, and come to the rostrum and said, well, I think actually Terrell answers that question in chapter four of the book. Remember Terrell, were you? And it was just, it was done with such grace and charity. And uh, I never forgot that. I thought that's a kind of uh, experience that not many people have in an academic setting where somebody just comes kind of to their rescue in just this brotherly, loving and subtle way. So I always thought that that was highly revelatory uh, and typical of his character. 
It, it's interesting you noted the, uh, the the time and place of the import of Eugene England. Uh, you, with, uh, with your book uh, that is out of the University of North Carolina Press, um, it's called Stretching the Heavens. And then there is another book that's forthcoming as well, and I believe that's the University of Illinois Press, uh, both about Eugene England and for some who have been listening to this, you know, as we've chatted for five or six minutes so far, they're still wondering, well, I'm not really sure I know who this character is uh, from church history. Uh, you know, they certainly know the time because we've been able to to place him within the history of the church. But I hope to, in the time that we have remaining, I've asked you to prepare 10 uh, things that you think are unique about Eugene England, and, and you did so. And I hope that we can spend a few minutes on each of them uh, to give people a little bit more light and, uh, and uh, understanding into what the life of Eugene England uh, was, why it was significant. And then we weave into that maybe a little bit, the crisis of modern Mormonism. So I want to pick it up. You sent number one that he worked for a few years in the church historical department. So I would love for you to elaborate on that. Right. Well, he did his graduate work uh, at Stanford uh, in Palo Alto in American literature and uh, wasn't able to secure a uh, the position that he wanted. He taught for a few years at a Lutheran college, St. Olaf in, in Minnesota, really wanted to teach at BYU, wanted to be a part of the church educational system, and wasn't able to secure his employment. Uh, probably a lot of indications that it was because by that time he had co-founded and was affiliated with Dialogue, and that was a very controversial journal at the time. So he did manage to land a, a, about a half-time appointment in the church historical department. And I think many people don't know about that part of his, of his history. It's significant for a couple of reasons. One, because that was during what people call the Camelot years. It was under Leonard Arrington. So it was uh, this incredibly um, exciting moment in church historiography when the archives were being opened, professional historians were being hired. Leonard Arrington was blazing new trails. BYU studies had, had recently launched. And so Gene England found himself at the forefront of this kind of intellectual fervor and awakening of a new kind of, of Mormon historical consciousness. And so it was also very important because he personally became uh, familiar with primary source material, especially on the life of Brigham Young, who was one of his uh, special uh, focuses of, of research there. And so his subsequent career in part, I think, has to be understood in terms of that immersion that he had in uh, church archival history and learning very quickly that there was a lot of material that hadn't come to light and hadn't made its way into uh, the, the, the kind of official narratives of, of the church. And so he was in that regard a true insider, even though he later became part of the English department, but he had more experience with archival materials and church history than than a lot of people in 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 the church then did. You know, I as far as I know or or understand it, I guess when you work with the church historical department, you sort of have these projects that you're working on. And I know that you mentioned that Brigham Young was sort of under his purview in in being able to see some of those artifacts, those things at the time. Are there other things that we know that he was privy to? 
No, it mostly was Brigham Young materials for two reasons. One is because he helped Leonard Arrington, who was then writing his own biography of Brigham Young. Mm -hmm. And so he did a lot of background research as kind of a research assistant. And then also, and now you're embarrassing me because I can't remember the name <laughs> of the famous um, Hollywood producer uh, who wanted to do a new movie on Brigham Young. And so the church was extremely interested in this project. They worked closely with him. And Gene was assigned to be kind of the liaison between the historical department and this, this Hollywood guy. And so he was writing a lot of possible treatments for that movie that ended up kind of going nowhere. But uh, so for those two reasons, both in terms of biography and in terms of a possible film, his focus was pretty much Brigham Young. And that, that tends to make me think that this was not a very long assignment with the church historical department. No, I don't remember exactly. I think it was a couple of years mm-hmm. um, before he eventually did get hired on to, to, to BYU. And so then he could leave that behind. And it, uh, to, to a, a large degree, it was just a great personal favor on the part of Leonard Arrington, realizing the, the kind of economic uh, crisis that he was in as a young father and that he had great qualifications. And uh, so he helped fill in that gap. You mentioned uh, as point number two uh, that you kind of sent to to couch this conversation is he's one of the creators of Mormon studies. I would be curious what you mean by that and how he was, in fact, one of the creators. Well, it, at the time that Gene England was on the scene, you know, Mormonism was still pretty uh, marginalized uh, in the field of religious studies and in the field of American religious history as to, to, to some extent, it, it, it still is today, of course. Mm-hmm. But he had this feeling, again, it largely came out of his work in the historical department, that there were unique contributions that the Latter-day Saints had made uh, in the field of literature. He thought that um, the Mormon emphasis on personal testimony, personal conviction, personal record-keeping, diaries and journals had created the grounds for Latter-day Saints to make a unique contribution in the area of American letters. And so kind of simultaneous with developing what would be called Mormon studies, he's also helping to develop, he's really at the forefront of creating this Mormon literature sub subcategory. And when he relocates to UVU in, uh, when was that, around 1999, 98, he received a, an incredibly um, kind of prestigious for, for the time and setting grant from the NEH to, to launch this endeavor in Mormon studies. And so, very quickly thereafter, right, programs would take place at, at Nottingham and then Durham and England and then Claremont and, you know, on and on. But I think his work, the program there at UVU was was the first, I think, I think it was the first program kind of specifically devoted to uh, what we would now call LDS studies or Mormon studies. And that's how it, that's how it got started. He was unsuccessful in, in getting support to do that at BYU, which BYU still has, has uh, neglected to do for mixed reasons. So UVU was actually the perfect setting and time for him to do that. I would be curious. It seems like the very natural place would be BYU. If you want to wade uh, wade into that, if not, we can certainly leave no, that. No, no, I don't know because I wasn't there. So I wasn't a part of the deliberations and the the controversies and the politicking. I know there were a lot of people who who felt if if not here, where you know that would be like Notre Dame not not studying Catholicism. Right. Um, but I think this is again this is speculation on my part. But I sense that in part there was a fear. That in in kind of this the the flagship institution of the church, do we really want to render the study of our faith academic? Hmm. That somehow contaminate the kind of work that we're doing in the church educational system in the religion department at BYU, whose primary objective is to build faith. 
and build testimony? And can we can we secularize the study of Mormonism successfully in a way that is compatible with that mission? I have a sense that that was a concern. I have a sense also that there was the concern that who would take Mormon studies seriously if it's being sponsored by the church mm. through its, its, its flagship institution. Huh. So for those reasons, they neglected to take that step. I appreciate you wading into that. I hadn't, I hadn't, first of all, considered it, but then second to know that, you know, UVU or UV, uh, UVSC as it maybe was then, I'm not sure, I can't remember yeah, the timeline yeah. on that, um, but to know that that was sort of the first place of, of Mormon studies, or one of the first, and that Gene England had something to do with that. He also co-founded Dialogue, and I want to do this question, then I want to take a break. I, I don't know that everyone knows what Dialogue is, so I'd like you to set that table and then maybe talk about the, the founding of that. Well, there was a sense in the 1960s that Gene shared with others that there wasn't any real forum, any, any, any stage on which intellectuals or just thoughtful Latter-day Saints who wanted to ask tough questions about the church, and not, not in an adversarial way, but in an, in an inquisitive way, uh, could, could meet together. You know, there was no, you know, equivalent of the, the great 18th century salons where Latter-day Saint intellectuals could come together, exchange ideas, cross-fertilize. And given the fact that in the background, Mormon historiography is coming of age, BYU Studies has been founded, there's this sense that what better time to create a journal dedicated to a kind of rigorous interrogation of, of our faith, of dialogue across both political and ideological and theological um, divides. And it was a sentiment that was shared by a number of others. And so he had pretty enthusiastic support and became probably the most prominent voice and figure associated with the, the, the creation of that journal as the name itself uh, kind of uh, symbolized Gene's whole life was a quest for a greater role for dialogue in his faith tradition. And it's, it's, this is one of the things that I think makes Gene and his voice more relevant today than ever before in our history, because certainly there's never been a greater time than the present moment when our church, like our American society, is polarized, mm -hmm. factionalized. And so he was an incredibly successful bridge builder. He, uh, one of the things that I really love about his agenda as he promoted it was he didn't just want to create a place for intellectuals. He wanted to create a place for just the very orthodox as well. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you know, many of his contemporaries were saying, we have to make room for doubt. And he was saying, yes, but we also have to make a place for religious certainty because unlike most contemporary right, Christian denominations, the Latter-day Saints through Joseph Smith especially have always placed a particular emphasis on certainty. That's a word that appears a lot in the discourses of, of Joseph Smith and his personal writings. You know, section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants is typical in this regard. It, it, it can come to pass that every person, right, can know of a certainty. And so Gene respected that aspect of Latter-day Saint doctrine and, and thought that intellectuals had to do more to accommodate and respect those people who stand up on, on Sundays and say, I know, even as they in turn need to respect the others who say, well, I don't know, but I hope or I believe or I, I, I choose to, to move in this direction anyhow. And so that was, I think, 
one of the core ideas behind the dialogue as a title. Let's 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 bring both of these parties into common conversation. Yeah, and oh, that we could do that better nowadays, right? Yeah, so it, that we had a Gene England to sort of lead out in some of those things. I would be curious. You said that he co-founded. Who were the other people that he co-founded dialogue with? I'm probably not going to be forgiven this, but um, Wesley Johnson, I think, was the was the the, co- the co-founder, but. Um, can't be sure of that. My focus was on him, and I, I kind of relegated to the background some of those other voices that were actually important at the time. Uh, and then following up on that question, uh, dialogue still exists today, and I think that's valuable for people that are hearing about this on this forum uh, now that may have never heard of that before. Where can they get, is it a printed journal? Is it something that they get online? Where can they interact with dialogue today? Both. It's a printed journal. And they have an online version and they have a tremendous website where I think virtually all of their past issues are available online. Uh, it's an invaluable resource. It's, uh, it's certainly one of the principal journals of modern Latter-day Saint intellectual history and culture. Um, and so, I mean, there are only, well, there, there are a few that uh, a few journals, I think, there, I mean, there's a Journal of Mormon History, there's, of course, BYU Studies, but Dialogue really was kind of a trailblazer, and they continue to be a very vibrant voice in Latter-day Saint intellectual culture. And if people want to find that, they can find it online at dialoguejournal.com. Uh, as Terrell mentioned, you can see not only the old uh, editions that are available, you can see the latest edition and also an opportunity for you to subscribe to it and to be able to donate to it because, you know, what a tremendous resource um, that is available for us. Let's take a break real quick, Terrell, then we'll come back. We've got seven more points that we're going to get through as we learn more about Gene England. We'll do that coming back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. A busy, full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to bestdjinutah.com. Why, that is me, Richie T., and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding, or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party. Whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh Uh-huh. Texas? Yes point is, uh, you know, you you throw shekels my way, I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the Cultural Hall. Mind blown. If you are in need of a DJ at all or someone in your family is getting married, would like to be able to talk to me, I would love to be able to talk to them. It's bestdjinutah.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. If you have not taken the opportunity yet, I encourage you, I implore you to go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall, an opportunity for you to put a little money where your mouth is. You love, you tell people that you love the cultural hall, you tell people about it, and you'd love for it to continue. Uh, We would love to have you pledge 
some money to make it continue to happen. Uh, you can do that. There is the uh, the $5 and the $10 tier of which we would love you to participate. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Terrell, as we continue to talk about Gene, uh, number four was was particularly uh, particular of interest to me. You said he was an early outspoken LDS critic of both the Vietnam War and racism. So I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, he came of age, uh, you know, during the radical 60s, and he's in one of the radical hotbeds of America, <laughs> right? There in, uh, in California, Palo Alto area. And uh, he doesn't talk a lot about his earliest political proclivities, but one gets a sense that he was fairly conservative, moderate anyhow. Um, some, something profound happened uh, at the time of the Gulf of Tonkin incident when it, you know, it, it came out that America had... The American leadership had not been honest with the American public about our involvement in the Vietnam War. And uh, he felt personally betrayed and was incensed uh, that his country uh, that, you know, he, like so many others, loved and trusted, had engaged in a kind of deception of the American public in order to prosecute this war in, in Southeast Asia. And he became a vehement critic of the Vietnam War. And this was uh, at a time, of course, most periods in Mormon history have been like this in that uh, there was a kind of hyper-patriotism at the time. Latter-day Saints were, were very um, public in their support of, of the war, saw it as a patriotic duty. And so he was going very much against the current of uh, LDS culture. And this would become really kind of one of the hinges in his intellectual and spiritual development was this recognition that there is a wider gap than we may have recognized between Latter-day Saint doctrinal commitments that we are bound to as faithful disciples and cultural baggage that has become part of the American Latter-day Saint tradition, hmm. but that he thought needed to be jettisoned or at least questioned and so the Vietnam War was one of these flashpoints for him. And it was a very unpopular stand for him to take, publicly opposing it. And then he also was uh, an incredible advocate of racial equality and justice. And of course, that put him into a particularly uncomfortable position since at that time, the church was, of course, still defending the racial ban. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to negotiate to thread this needle of not questioning the, the church or its doctrine at the same time that he's trying to foreground in his own writing and, and speaking, the need to address uh, what we now to, would, would call systemic racism in the United States and in the church. So when we talk about being an outspoken LDS critic in that time, if, if, I've, if I've got my U.S. history right, I'm thinking we're right around early 70s, late 60s, kind of that, that bridging there. How, what does an outspoken LDS critic look like at that time? Well, in his case, um, he had a ready-made uh, forum for his outspokenness, which was the magazine he had just founded. And so he organized a roundtable on, on the Vietnam War. And um, he was an institute teacher in Palo Alto. And he made his views known to his students. And some of them complained to some of the brethren. And so he actually engaged in, uh, I don't want to say conflict, but there, there, there was... There were definitely some conversations between uh, people like Marion D. Hanks, who at the time was the serviceman's representative of the church. Mm. So he and Gene would later develop uh, an important friendship in, in Gene's life. 
but at the same time, it began under these kind of tense conditions because there he is representing the interests of the LDS servicemen, and 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 Gene is 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 criticizing the the role of America in the Vietnam War. Uh, so um, it was both kind of in private in his teaching and in his publishing that he is taking a, a very pronounced stand against the war and against racism. It's it's fascinating to to hear about this uh, about that time and to know you know the 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 like and the character of, of Gene England and then look in more recent history maybe some other individuals that have characteristics like them and to, and to see what has befallen them and and we'll get to that uh, I think sort of later on in the conversation but to have that outspokenness towards those things and and certainly uh, especially given the idea of racism. Um, and we see the priesthood ban being lifted. I, I wonder, was there any sort of redemption that you felt like came to Gene England kind of being on, if you'll forgive the, the phrase, the right side of history and all that? Well, you know, in some ways there was a kind of vindication. I think much of his life ended up being vindicated. There's, there's almost nothing I can think of that he wrote that if he had written it today would even raise an eyebrow. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, both his writings on race and his writings on the LGBT issues would today be considered rather retrograde and reactionary. Hmm. Uh, for example, when it came to, to race, he, he didn't question for a moment that the racial ban was divinely authorized. But his explanation for it was it was a response to Latter-day Saint racism. And so he laid the guilt not at the feet of some presumed unworthiness on the part of black people, but on the unworthiness of the church and their unreadiness to accept in full fellowship members of other races. Hmm. Um, so to defend the ban as divinely authorized would certainly put him in a minority today. Sure. Um, but, but just his kind of calling uh, the church itself on the carpet, not in, not, not in terms of its leadership, but in terms of kind of the rank and file, the, you know, the you and me of the church. Um, that was that was considered a, a step too far. He also was rather impolitic in the way that he addressed the history of racism in the church. And again, because he knew Brigham Young so intimately and knew the sources so well, in one of his articles on race, he essentially provided a kind of catalog of the most egregious instances of racist discourse that Brigham Young had engaged in. And you know, the question that he raised to himself subsequent to the publication of that article and the and the hurt it caused and anguish it caused among some in the leadership was a recognition that um, sometimes a parade of our moral indignation is more self-serving than other serving. Hmm. I thought it was really one of the most poignant moments of insight that he recorded in his own journal is when he listened to a talk given by a South African member of the church about racism. And the person giving the talk spoke of the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. And Gene reflected on this in his journal and said, you know, it seems to me that his approach was much more conducive of healing than my ranting and railing against racism within the church. Uh, so an interesting kind of moment of self-recognition there. Yeah. This is fascinating to know about uh, Gene England, right? So many people, when they started listening to this, said, oh, you know, I'll listen. It's Terrell Givens, for crying out loud. And then are being introduced to someone who 
formative in a lot of the uh, the you know the things that we experience within the church today. Certainly outspoken in some of those things, um, but to be able to know who he is and his significance within the fabric of the the history of the church. You also mentioned that he was an accomplished poet. I would love to know more about that and why you think that's critical when sort of preparing a list about Gene England. Why that would need to be mentioned? Well, he was he was one of the main forces behind the the organization of the Association of Mormon Letters, the AML, which is still still uh, an organization today. I don't know if I would say it's thriving, but it's still certainly intact. Um, he he believed that Latter Day Saints had a a unique responsibility, but also a unique vantage point from which to contribute to American letters um, or world letters generally for that matter. Um, and, and this was another, I thought, interesting example of how he was absolutely determined to synthesize the, the, the best of the academic world and the unique features of a Latter-day Saint sensibility because he believed, um, and his, his mentor Wallace Stegner certainly believed that it was becoming kind of a la mode in American letters to exude cynicism and nihilism and, and, and despair. And, and Jean thought there had to be some way of introducing into uh, literature uh, a perspective that was um, in alignment with, if not reflective of, our unique views about the perfectibility of man and the inherent goodness of human nature and, and these kinds of things. So he was determined that we had to make our voices heard. Uh, it was kind of a revisiting of the, the late 19th century Orson Whitney's call to arms, you know, for a home literature um, that, that kind of fell flat in the late 19th century because Mormon writers responded with a heavily didactic uh, kind of formulaic literature. And Gene England was convinced that we could do it better. And uh, so he himself practiced uh, the poetic form not widely published. I don't think there was ever a collection of his poetry published, but he would publish, you know, um, individual poems in different venues, uh, including, of course, dialogue. And I, as a professor of literature, find uh, his his poetry really quite beautiful. Uh, much of it was really just extremely fine poetry. And uh, he he tended to, he, he had a habit when somebody new was called to the Quorum of the Twelve or to be an assistant to the Twelve, or a commissioner of education, he would immediately send a letter, kind of of introduction, because um, and you know one can one can question his motives. Yes, part of it is he he wanted to be affirmed, but part of it I think is too he wanted to to make a genuine a genuine contribution, and and he felt he had something to offer, and it would be helpful uh, if the church leadership were aware of him and his talents and his efforts, and so it was very very common of him to send a letter of introduction along with some of his poetry to, to these brethren. And he would, you know, typically get very polite re replies back. But uh, yeah, he was a, a beautiful poet. Uh, I would put you on the spot and ask you if you happen to have uh, a Gene England poem uh, or access quickly to one that you could share with us. Uh, yeah, I do, actually, uh, because it's one that sticks out in my mind the most. And it's, it's, a, it's a long poem about uh, in some ways, his own spiritual development. I'm just going to read an excerpt from it that refers to what may have been the most formative spiritual experience of his life that involved a particular moment that he was with his father in the fields. Hmm. And this is how it reads. We drove from town just as the sun squinted down left fork into our eyes. We stopped the truck 
and crossed the swale to the highest ridge on the lower field. The stalks still green, the heads just formed, beards now turning silver tan, still and moist in the windless dawn, closing calmly as we walked the rows. Plucking random heads, we counted and chewed the milky kernels. And then he knelt, still grasping the wheat in fierce repose. I stood and watched his face. He said, thou art the prince who holds my heart and gives my body power to make. The fruit is thine, this wheat, this boy, protect the yield that we may live. And fear thrilled me on that hushed ground so that I grew beyond the wheat and watched my father take his hold on what endures behind the veil. Wow, that's, that is, that is very beautiful. I, I am breath, uh, breath tooken. That's not the right word. My breath has been taken away. Yeah, that's majestic poetry. That's Gene at his best. Number six, you said he was perhaps the most gifted practitioner of the personal essay in our tradition. And so I would be curious. Uh, I, I feel like I know what a personal essay is, but you're going to need to dumb it down for me. And I'll, I'll, take the, uh, I'll take the question for everyone else who's like, I'm not sure that I know exactly what that means. Uh, but then w- what, that, what that significance is within our tradition of the personal essay. Yeah, well, the personal essay has a long history. Um, you know, uh, Bacon in English did the personal essay as an art form, but his were very polished and epigrammatic. Uh, Montaigne, the Frenchman, right, kind of uh, employed that word essay for the first time. I think the origin, the etymology is an important key to understanding a kind of lasting uh, quintessential feature of the essay. Essay in French means the attempt or the try. Hmm. And so there's something about the essay that is inherently tentative. It's not dogmatic. It doesn't claim to be definitive. It's a kind of exploratory subjective genre. And uh, so it it became kind of uh, extremely popular during the 19th century, the Romantic period is where it attained its its height. Uh, Gene England believed that because LDS faith is so experientially rooted, that we had a unique vocabulary and a unique investment in finding the universal in the particular, I think is how he would have said it. That we come to God through a deeply personal subjective experience of the divine. And so he thought that we were uniquely practiced in the discipline of introspective spirituality. And he found that early Latter-day Saint journals were replete with a kind of eloquence of simplicity. Uh, You know, the great Shakespeare scholar, Arthur Henry King, who was a contemporary of of, of Gene England, uh, in many forums would retell his conversion story and he would relate it to his reading of Joseph Smith's account of the first vision. And so here we have a Shakespeare scholar. He's reading Joseph Smith's account, which, um, you know, as, as we endlessly repeat, right, is written by this unlettered, untutored, semi-educated farm boy. Mm -hmm. And Arthur Henry King found in the simplicity a kind of self-evident spiritual truthfulness that was there. And so that's the characteristic that I think Gene England was attracted to. And so not only did he want to commemorate and celebrate the Mormon essay, but he wanted to lead out in practicing it. And so that was his genre of choice. And so he published three or four collections of his own essays. And I think to this day, they're unsurpassed 
in their 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 the, the quality, the writing, the elegance, the exposition, um, and and they captured as he hoped to a kind of synthesis of the literary and the spiritual, the universal, and the and the very deeply personal. I want to hit up one more of these, and then I want to take a final break, and we'll come up and make our way through number 10. Uh, Number seven that you shared was he tried to revive a medieval theology of atonement called moral influence theory that got him into trouble. Right. Well, I think his view, although he wasn't terribly explicit about this, but, you know, in my own work, I've, well, many people have traced the history of of atonement theology, but I've tried to trace it in our own tradition and see where its roots are and how we've come to use the kind of language and vocabulary we do. Not talking about doctrine as much as I'm talking about exposition, a way of trying to frame and understand um, atonement. And it went through several major phases in the Christian uh, tradition, but the most lasting influence for our own day, for modern Christianity, is, is the penal substitution theology that was brought to a high point by both Luther and Calvin and others. And it's based on a very, a a kind of legalistic model that there's a certain legal debt that we incur because of sin. There's a payment that has to be exacted so that we can zero out the balance. You have to inflict a certain amount of pain, commensurate with the injury, Mm -hmm. and then, and then we zero out and we're justified. And uh, in many ways, I think it's, it's, it has kind of barbaric roots and barbaric overtones because it implies that we have to be protected from God's vengeance. He's going to exact this penalty. And Christ says, here, here, punish me instead. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was protested in the medieval period by, by one great figure in particular, Abelard, Pierre Abelard, um, the, uh, the famous Heloise and Abelard love story that many have heard about. Mm-hmm. And he thought there had to be a better way um, of understanding God and his purposes and nature than to interpret him as demanding retribution and blood. And so he believed that Christ's sacrifice was efficacious, not in some kind of metaphysical way that it equaled the scales of, of justice and mercy, but it was efficacious because when we behold the extent of his self-sacrifice on our behalf, we are profoundly moved and and broken in heart and ready to come to him and forgive those who have trespassed against us and to emulate his example of compassion. Hmm. And so Gene England brings this back in an essay he writes called That All Might Not Suffer. uh, And it's a, a Mormon view of atonement. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, uh, I think it's profoundly moving as a piece of theology. And he, he was very proud of this piece. He published it, uh, I think, in the 60s uh, in dialogue for the first time. He gave it as talks. He would teach it in firesides. He promulgated it as a Sunday school teacher recurrently. He sent copies of it out to some of the brethren and received negative responses, both from Elder Maxwell and from Elder Packer. Hmm. Elder Maxwell, if I could kind of paraphrase his response was, it's a beautiful theology. Uh, the only fault I can find with it is that it isn't true. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we don't have a record of Elder Packer's response, but we know that he didn't, didn't read it approvingly. Uh, Gene England tended to forget those responses and would insist that he had never received pushback. And so he continued to promulgate those views and those teachings. And when he was finally pressured out of BYU, uh, in in the 90s, it's significant that that his 
beliefs about atonement were explicitly invoked in one of the last uh, exchanges he had with the president of BYU before his dismissal. What do you what do you think it is about that particular way of perceiving the atonement compared to you know that very justice uh, driven uh, model that you explained beforehand? What do you, why do you think that is so so scary or so different or so um, so unapprovingly received? I think for a couple of reasons. One is because uh, the most influential, well, one of the two most influential um, doctrinal expositors of that era was Boyd K. Packer. Mm. And he was very much wedded to a very, very literal penal substitution model of atonement. And the language of scripture is certainly evocative of of some kind of substitution. Um, I think that one can espouse a kind of uh, moral influence theology and reconcile it with scripture if one has an understanding of justice that is rooted more in the Book of Mormon than in medieval legalism. So I don't think his view needs to be as problematic theologically as it is, but I think the brethren believe that it contravened uh, official LDS teachings on the atonement and and the scriptural record. Do you believe that here in the 21st century that we've sung, swung sort of more toward that moral influence uh, with, you know, the, the ideas of kind of spiritualism or less you know, legalistic as people try and engage Christ? And I'm speaking more towards maybe those Gen Z or or beyond uh, kind of folks interacting with the church who maybe don't look at it in such a literal way? Absolutely. Um, I, I think so. And I think, you know, in Fiona's and my work, what we're trying to suggest is that the Book of Mormon itself very directly and very explicitly tries to, uh, I won't say contravene, but it certainly tries to enrich and enhance our conception of atonement by emphasizing healing uh, rather than redemption from sin and tries to emphasize woundedness rather than sinfulness as an essential feature of the human condition. And I think that both people inside and outside of the church are much more responsive to that kind of language. And I, and I have to say, I think that that language and that emphasis is absolutely consistent with LDS teachings. Hmm. Um, it's, just a, it's just a different emphasis uh, and a different tone but one, I haven't heard at least um, doctrinal expositions from the pulpit reaffirming penal substitution in explicit ways uh, in, in the manner that we heard in the 1970s and 80s. I want to take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll pick it up. We've got three more points about the life of Jean England, and we'll do that coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Are you experiencing panic attacks, nausea, or diarrhea? Is your computer not turning on? Is it running super slow? Is your internet crawling? Or is it just randomly crashing? You could be suffering from ICS, Irritable Computer Syndrome. I want you to ask yourself, when was the last time you had your PC cleaned? Over time, Windows, updates, spyware, malware, and dangerous viruses will make your computer run like crap. You need to bring in your laptop or desktop PC, no matter what brand it is, and let me run a 100% free virus scan, malware, and spyware scan on your computer. Don't wait and risk losing everything. Now, why are we doing this for free? Because we want to impress you so much that if you or any of your friends or family need a computer, service, or phone repair, you come to PC Laptops first. Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, don't 
forget, you can always get in touch with us, and there is a ton of ways to do so. You can find us online at theculturalhall.com. You can send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. It's always open, never closes. Love to get your responses. Even if it's just, man, I love Terrell Given so much. Can we have him on every episode? I welcome those emails as well. You can reach out to us in a review wherever you're getting this episode. Uh, you can say how great it was there. You can find us on all social medias at The Cultural Hall, and whether it be direct messages uh, or anything within that platform, we get those messages as well and love to respond that way. Uh, be sure you find us at The Cultural Hall. So, Terrell, we've got three more. Uh, number eight, you say that he hated the labels liberal and conservative. Yeah. Um, and of course, this calls to mind Christine Hagland's um, wonderful uh, treatment of Jean England, where she she titles it uh, Eugene England Mormon liberal. And there's certainly a sense in which that that label makes sense. But he was on record time and again as deploring the fact that he was labeled a liberal because he believed that his position on social issues was uh, his positions were dictated by the gospel and not by political affiliation or political inclination. And it is in fact the case that in some ways that label doesn't fit because he was so absolutely riveted in a foundation of faithfulness to what he saw as Joseph Smith's original teachings and original vision. So um, I would, you know, the term I would like is one actually it's been used by, by the Faith Matters organization. It was an expansive Mormonism. So he was an expansive thinker. Um, liberal in the sense that many of his anti-war and, and anti-racism positions tended to align with the liberal wing of the Democratic Party at that time. But um, he certainly wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say that he was progressive in the sense of assuming that we are somehow more enlightened than our founders and are waiting for them to catch up mm. with us, which is the feeling that one can sometimes get from contemporary uh, critics. But but that's a large explanation. We just love to put labels on people and say liberal or yep. conservative, and we like to then we like to know how we treat them because we put them in that box, and that's you know that's one of the big flaws and why there's so much just contention and 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 disarray today. I feel like is because we want to go. You are this. I know what this means, and then I can disregard you because you are whatever that thing is, and. We're, no, we're, no, you're absolutely right. We're, yeah. we're, we're in for a world of hurt, I think, with with doing it that way. Yeah. You know, uh, in church today, I heard somebody give a talk and they made some point about us being like icebergs. And I thought, you know, that is the most fantastic analogy. Mm -hmm. Human beings are icebergs. We get we get 10% of the persona and think we know the individual. And I think one of the beautiful things about, about Gene was he realized the complexity of human character and human personality and really felt that it was an anti-humanistic kind of impulse to, to pigeonhole uh, people by those kinds of labels. And, and I, you know, I don't think anybody doubts uh, the damage that they do personally and, and, and kind of culturally. Yeah. I, I don't know that anyone doubts it, but I don't know that we fully understand uh, its impact as well. As I yeah. think about it, um, number nine. I'm curious to know more about this. He and he's unfortunately most remembered by many for his condemnation by Bruce R. McConkie. Yeah, this was one of the more tragic episodes of his life, and it's how he probably first came to the notice of a large segment of the LDS Church who hadn't known about him before. 
So here's here's one of the one of the greatnesses of of Gene England was that he was one of the first to see around the corner and recognize that we were facing a moment in our history as a church when there was going to be an inevitable collision between the narrative that we were teaching in in through our church educational system and you know Sunday school classes and the complexities that were coming to be unburied regarding our historical past. And he saw these, and he saw that his students were starting to see these. Mm. And the example that he first chose to focus on once he was a professor at BYU were conflicting notions about the nature of God as a progressive being. So some of the brethren uh, based probably largely on the King Follett discourse, see God as, right, he was once a human, he's now divine, he's continuing to progress insofar as he's continuing to, to, to gain power and dominion and glory as his creatures uh, ascend right through the kind of celestial hierarchy with him. And so he, he thought in that sense, we can think of God as a progressive being. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the tradition that I, I think was associated more with Hiram Smith. I would not have faith in a God who didn't have all power. So a more conventionally theist conception of God's omnipotence and omniscience that he always, always was, uh, had total knowledge, total glory, total divinity. And so students recognized that there was a contradiction here and it was unsettling, right? If this is the restoration and these are prophets and apostles, how are we getting contradictory signals? Right. And so Gene took it upon himself to try to affirm faith and recognize complexity by finding a synthesis of those two views that did reverence to both perspectives while finding a reconciliation of the two in a more complex understanding. And so he gave a, a presentation on, on this at BYU. It was very well received. He was asked to give it again in a, in a broader setting in the Varsity Theater. He had heard that uh, that Joseph, um, oh, come on, what's Joseph uh, Fielding McConkie, a, prof- a religion professor, and related, of course, in the McConkie family, disagreed with what he was teaching. And in this incredible generosity of spirit that you just seldom see in the academic world, Gene said, why don't you come to the talk? Hmm. and presents an opposing position upon the conclusion of my remarks. Well, he did. He accepted the invitation, but instead of engaging Gene England in debate, uh, he just demeaned and belittled him and spoke in language that was quite uh, insulting and just kind of invoked his his authority and the authority of the McConkie name and the McConkie family. Hmm. Well, word got back to Elder McConkie what had transpired, and uh, subsequently... Elder McConkie gave a talk at BYU on the seven heresies of Mormonism. And one of the seven was the belief that God is a progressing being. And anybody familiar in any way with the background knew that this was directly aimed at at Gene England. And again, his language was pretty condemnatory and and pretty unsympathetic. Mm. It was was just a a damning, um, um, belittling kind of um, speech. Gene England wrote to Elder McConkie and tried to defend his position and explain that he was trying to engage in a faith-building exercise. 
Elder McConkie responded with a letter that was leaked to the press uh, or to the public. It wasn't leaked by Gene England. It's pretty clear that it was leaked by somebody in Elder McConkie's office. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, I think, a seven-page letter in which Elder McConkie left no uncertainty that, that Gene England's position, his responsibility was to keep quiet when apostles spoke and uh, would brook no discussion at all about the issue. And then in general conference, there, there were other clear, unmistakable allusions uh, in Elder McConkie's next general conference talk, again, condemning these ideas. So with those two public pronouncements, with the circulation of the letter that had Gene England's name on it, it soon became quite well known uh, in, in, in the LDS church among all interested parties anyhow, um, that, that uh, Gene England had been condemned and silenced. And uh, what was disappointing about that was that he wasn't, he wasn't trying to teach doctrine. He was trying to find a faithful reconciliation of diverse views. And as I said, it was, uh, to my mind, it was a, a kind of prophetically uh, prescient understanding that this is where we're headed in the age of the internet. We're gonna find all kinds of discrepancies and, and contending interpretations and voices. And we have to find a way to make room for the fallibility and the flaws in human nature, even prophetic um, figures, uh, without undermining the, the the foundations of faith itself. And that's what he was trying to do. But uh, as I hear you sort of describe it, uh, my mind is sort of drawn to, to the September 6th, the sort of most public, um, you know, intellectuals and scholars who wrote about those things. Um, that eventually they found themselves to um, be removed from the church, excommunicated from the church. Uh, th it doesn't sound like it's too much different necessarily um, than what Gene England was teaching, but was it because maybe since he was a BYU professor that they didn't take that extra step or was it different leadership over the time? Or what do you think made it so that he was just silenced as opposed to you know found his way outside of the church? Well, I think one characteristic of... of Gene England's public posture was that nobody, even in the highest levels of church leadership, could doubt for a moment that he absolutely affirmed prophetic leadership, prophetic mm. authority, and prophetic keys. Mm. So he never at any moment was calling into question the inspiration or the authority of the leadership. And I think he made that so clear and was so emphatic mm. that uh, it nobody really could have you know, credibly made a case that he had committed apostasy huh. in, in any significant way. And whereas, obviously, with the others, there, there is some question as to, you know, the questioning of the leadership of the church. That's fascinating to know that, you know, that, that there is, is not only that um, confrontation, both uh, literal between Joseph Fielding McConkie and uh, Gene England, uh, but also to know sort of the subtext between uh, some of these general conference and also BYU talks. That that era in our church's history, especially when you talk about Hugh Nibley as well, to know that there was what was being said and then what was subtextually being said to try and speak to these different factions and parties. It's a it's a fascinating. Uh, time in our church's history. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's part of what really I was trying to do in this biography is use it as a window uh, into the, the the complex cultural dynamics that were unfolding behind the scenes. And, you know, the subtitle that, that UNC chose was, right, Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism, but it could just as accurately have been called Gene England and the Crisis of Mormon Modernism. 
we probably don't have time to go into this, but you know, the Catholic and Protestant traditions both endured a severe crisis of modernism in the early 20th century. And what I mean by that, what historians mean by that crisis of modernism was the awakening of a historical consciousness that suddenly made it impossible to view either the scriptures or the institution as transcending history. There was a recognition that we have to see them as at least in part cultural products. And what does that do for our understanding of scripture and church inspiration and authority? Well, Mormonism managed to bypass that whole crisis for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact that they were culturally and intellectually isolated. They didn't send right professors to religious seminaries back east, except on a limited basis in 1930s. And that was a catastrophic experiment, which caused even further retrenchment. And uh, so there are all of these reasons why Mormonism couldn't escape the crisis, but they managed to defer it until the 1970s. And so that's why I think Martin Marty was, was right when he said what was happening in the 1960s and 70s was Mormonism's version of Vatican II. Hmm. It was kind of coming, you know, uh, coming to, to terms with these major shifts in the historical consciousness. And Gene England is right, right at the nexus of this. And he is trying to help work through those perturbations in, in a helpful way. But it wasn't wasn't appreciated as helpful. You make mention with uh, point number 10, and I thought this to be interesting based on all of the other things that you uh, pointed out in the life of Gene England, is uh, that he served twice as a bishop and once as a branch president. Given the other, you know, varied things that, that we've mentioned within this, wh why is that significant? Well, you know, there's an interesting moment at, at uh, Gene's funeral in 2001, where there was this wide array of tributes and speakers, and everybody wanted to claim Gene England as their own, right? He was ours. He was an intellectual. He was ours. He was a liberal. He was ours. He was a, you know, mm -hmm. and, but the last, or I don't remember if he was last, or one of the last speakers was his stake president. And um, he rehearsed part of Gene England's final testimony that he had borne publicly. And it was in some ways his way of affirming, well, all this may be true, but first and foremost, he was, he was an absolute believer. And I think Gene England was never happier in his private life than when he received those calls because they were to his mind, a kind of affirmation that the Lord recognized that the most important thing in his life was his place in the community of believers and his ability to serve them and rub shoulders with them. So I include those 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 callings because I think they were so crucial to his self-definition. And it's important that we recognize that as much as we want to claim him as a modern in so many ways, that uh, he was an old-fashioned mystic who believed in the reality of spiritual experiences and spiritual communication and God speaking to the human heart. You know that we ask a, a question at the end of every Cultural Hall episode, and we're going to have to adapt it a little bit because we're talking about a book that you've written about another individual who is no longer with us, but I'm going to do my best to do this question. Uh, what is your favorite part of the faith that Gene England had? Uh, I think it was this, that... Um, I don't know of any individual in the modern church that has been so publicly humiliated and repudiated in spite of their efforts to be an absolutely faithful and loyal servant of the Lord. And yet 
in my conversations with his family and uh, in his journal, he never once reviled against even those individuals who had publicly rebuked him. And I think that's the thing that I most admire about, about his faith was that it was not uh, about self-affirmation ultimately. It was about recognizing his place within a community of believers. And, and he was a flawed man, but he, he practiced what he preached. And I think he exemplified a spirit of dialogue and reconciliation in a way that was just deeply moving to me. Well, I appreciate that. The name of the book, again, is Stretching the Heavens, The Life of Eugene England and the Crisis of Modern Mormonism. Uh, We've been visiting with Terrell Gibbons, the author of said book, and uh, you can get it wherever uh, great books are sold. If you have a local bookstore, we always try and uh, urge you to get them from that local bookstore or get them to order. Give your money local. That's what we try and do uh, here in the Cultural Hall. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Brother Brent, and Chocolate Cake Bites podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back.